the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Welcome to week three of our series exploring the book of Esther. Now I think there are two interweaving questions running through the book of Esther. One that's explicit, how do humans use the power they have, whilst the second hovers in the background behind the narrative. How does God use the power he has? Well, tonight we're in chapters 3 and 4, and it is here that these two twin questions come together, and the central plot or dilemma at the heart of the book is revealed. So far, chapters 1 and 2 have set the scene. They explore the Persian court and raise questions about who had power, and how did they use their power? Nick and Meg helpfully took us through these two chapters and I would thoroughly recommend listening to their recordings if you have not heard them yet. This week it was reported that at least 26 million people turned in to watch the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Over the 10 days of official mourning we learnt a lot about her life and the impact that she had had on people. As a constitutional monarch, she actually had very little direct political power, despite being the head of state. She did not determine government policy, she did not create and enforce laws, and she did not control our armed forces. And yet, as the TV coverage demonstrated through the reactions and actions of ordinary people, she clearly has influenced the lives of so many people. Therefore, I think it's true to say that she was a very powerful person. I wonder what your definition of power is. What makes someone powerful? Power is often described as a measure of our ability to achieve an intended aim. So when dealing with people, power is our capacity or ability to change the behaviour of others, to make them do what you want them to do. Power can involve the use or threat of physical force. But the Queen clearly did not express her power like this. So how can I say that she was a very powerful woman? Why not turn to a neighbour or just sit quietly and think about it for 10 seconds? You see, power can also involve indirect action as well as direct. We sometimes talk of soft power as well as hard power. Through example, through advice and suggestions, people can change their behaviour. And this, I think, is where Queen Elizabeth's power lay. She influenced people by setting an example in how she lived her life and interacted with others. And she influenced people through words of advice and comments she gave. Influences are incredibly powerful people. Just look at the rise of the social media influencers today. Well, moving away from the example of the Queen to explore the power of influences in general. While we sometimes focus on those official leaders who we think have power because they appear publicly to be calling the shots, directing the affairs, making choices, there can be people behind the scenes, people in the shadows influencing and shaping what's happening. And it is important to notice this at work in the book of Esther. Yes, rightly, King Xerxes is revealed as the centre of power in the Persian court in chapter 1 and chapter 2. King Xerxes orders things to happen and they do. Chapter 1 verse 8 is a simple example. Let me read it to you. 
By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. But I wonder if you noticed in chapters 1 and 2 that he did not act alone, that there were people influencing his decisions, helping to shape the commands he issued. For example, chapter 1 verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Koshena, Shethar, Adamatha, Tashish, Mez, Marsena and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. You see, these seven men were special. Only these seven advisers could enter the king's presence without invitation. And in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we can read of their influence in shaping the behaviour of King Xerxes. They, in a sense, were the power behind the throne. Listen to verse um, 19 in chapter 1. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. And the king does just that. So holding on to how powerful influences can be, let us now turn to chapters 3 and 4. Nick's going to read chapter 3 for us, and later on I'm going to invite somebody to read chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, turn to chapter 3 now. Just stop this recording and read through the text. Well, chapter 3 opens with the introduction of our fourth main character in the book, Haman, five years after the activities of chapter 2. We're not told why, but Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, becomes a powerful influencer in the empire. In verse 2 of chapter 3, we learn that the king commands all the royal court are to honour or recognise the power and status Haman has by bowing to him. But also in that same verse, we learn that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, would not bow, not accept the power of the king or Haman to make him behave in a certain way. And this act of defiance, of resistance, this challenge to the power of Xerxes and Haman has consequences which take up the rest of the book of Esther. You see, Mordecai resists, rejects, ignores the power Haman claims over him. In doing this, Mordecai is claiming that Haman, and indirectly the Persian Empire, is not all-powerful. Now, we're not explicitly told why Mordecai rejects Haman's claim to power, but the way the two characters are introduced in the Book of Esther suggests a reason. Mordecai is introduced as a Jew. Haman is introduced as a Agagite. You see, the Agagites were the descendants of the Amalekites, a nation the Jews had battled against from the very first days when they tried to live in the promised land, the land God promised to give them in the covenant he made with Abraham. So perhaps Mordecai is refusing to acknowledge that the Amalekites had won the battle for power and control over the Jews and the land. When Haman finds out about Mordecai's action, or in this case lack of action, 
the consequences of Mordecai's resistance are revealed. Haman will, an Amalekite will, once and for all destroy the Jewish people. The Jewish nation, Israel, will come to an end. The land will be free from them. We're talking genocide here. Haman will use the destruction of the Jews to demonstrate his personal power. Now chapter 3 verses 8 through to 11 reveal how powerful advisors, how powerful influencers, the people in the shadows can really be. Haman manipulates the supposed king of the Persian Empire to get his own way. He knows how to make Xerxes do what he wants. By using Xerxes' fear of losing power and his love of money, Haman reveals himself as the real power behind the throne. A power Haman uses for his own purposes, for his own benefit. Haman's attitude to power is that it should serve his own agenda. Haman is presented as a narcissist. For Haman, power is self-serving rather than others serving. Now it seems to me that his approach to power is in direct contrast to what we have heard over the last two weeks about the life of Queen Elizabeth II. She used her power, her influence, not for her own personal gain, but for the benefit of others. Guided by her strong Christian faith and its accompanying values, she strove to seek the good of others through the influence she had over those in leadership around the world, as well as using words to encourage ordinary people she met through all the activities and organisations she was involved with. Now let us pause at this point and think about something. How do each of us use our power, our influence? Do we use it for our own purposes? Or do we use it for the benefit of others? Can you think of a recent example of how you deliberately tried to influence the behaviour of others, either directly or indirectly? I wonder what changes you were trying to bring about and why. Within the Old Testament, the prophets in particular seem to indicate a very simple test to see whether, as individuals or as a nation, the people of God were exercising their power and influence appropriately. These prophets focused on how the people or the nation treated the poor, the weak and the vulnerable. Women, orphaned, foreigners. How did those with power use it for the benefit of those who had little power? And I think that's an interesting set of criteria we can apply across history. The New Testament also has a lot to say about the use of power. So I wonder where you would start in the New Testament. Where would you go to to find out how to use power? What influence you possess and how to use it? We'll pause for 10 seconds while you reflect. Your starting point might have been perhaps Jesus' teaching. Perhaps Matthew 22 verses 37 to 39. Those two great commands to love God and love our neighbours. So we use our power for that. Or you might have thought about the lived example of Jesus himself. Who was willing to use his power, his position of authority, his life to serve others. As Paul declares, let me read Philippians 2 verses 5 through to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, 
being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Alongside Jesus, I wonder if you have other role models down through church history or people you know locally or nationally in the 21st century. These people who remind you to use whatever power and influence you have for the benefit of others. Who are those who influence you in the way you behave? Who do you listen to? Let us return to the book of Esther again. As we move into chapter 4, we see three reactions to Haman seeking to eliminate the very existence of the people of God. In chapter 3, verse 15, Xerxes and Haman are celebrating. They're looking forward to what is going to happen. The fact that they're described sitting down suggests a major celebration. But also we hear that the ordinary people of Susa are confused. They did not know why Haman chose to use his power in such a destructive way against the Jews. They didn't see the Jewish presence there an issue. And then in chapter 4 verses 1 and verse 3 we read of Mordecai and the people of God's reactions. Let us pause now and let's listen as chapter 4 is read to us. We're going to read from 1 through to verse 14. We're not going to go past verse 14 for this reading. Okay, look at verses 1 and 3 with me. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. The end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 raises the second question which I mentioned at the start of my talk. How does God use the power he has? Where is God in the book of Esther? God's name is never mentioned specifically. So this question just sits below the surface, just in the background as we hear about the events going on. It surely, for the people of God then and for us as Christians now, raises that question. How does God use the power he has? In chapter 4 in the ebb and flow between Mordecai and Esther, it may appear confusing to the reader, this backwards and forwards, but the two questions about the use of power are at play. You see, physical space in the ancient world was used to show how much power someone had. Where people were allowed to go or enter revealed their status or honour or power. Haman can enter the very presence of Xerxes, uninvited, but neither Mordecai or Esther can. Perhaps Mordecai, in his angst, forgets about the limitations of Esther's own power when he asks her in verse 8 to go to the, pe to the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Esther reminds him of her limited power in the palace hierarchy in chapter 4 verse 11. Listen. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death 
unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now Mordecai's follow-on speech in response clearly raises the two questions woven into the book of Esther. Verse 13 Do not think that because you are the king's, in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your fam father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai clearly trusts God will use his power. As it says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God will be faithful and save his people. But he appears not sure how or through whom God's power will be revealed. When he says, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In this speech, Mordecai asks Esther whether she will remain faithful to her people of birth, whether she will stand in solidarity with God's covenant people. I don't know if you ever noticed back in chapter 2 for those who heard it uh, last week listen to how Esther is introduced to the reader in verse 7 Mordecai has a cousin named Hadassah who he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother this young woman who is also known as Esther Esther is the only character in the book who has two names a Jewish name and a Persian name Mordecai back in chapter 2 told Esther to keep her Jewish identity quiet. So clearly Xerxes and Haman do not know that Esther was a Jew. If she keeps quiet, then she will be safe and escape the genocide that Haman and Xerxes are going to bring about on all the other Jews. But Mordecai believes that if Esther does not speak out on behalf of the Jews, then she's giving up her Jewish identity and heritage, so that when God acts, Esther, along with the Persian Empire, Xerxes and all those in the royal household, will suffer judgment. Mordecai reminds Esther that God often brings about his plans through individual people. Think back through the Bible and recall those God chose to work through. He chose to use his power, work his power through. I think two people that stand out for me when I'm thinking back particularly because they served God in a foreign land, and Joseph and Daniel. So Esther is presented with a decision. Does she open herself up to the possibility that God wants to work through her to save his people? Is she willing to resist the power of the empire that Haman wants to force onto the Jewish people? Is she willing to resist the power and face the consequences of rejecting the authority of Xerxes? Is she willing to suffer the consequences of remaining faithful to God? And like any good series, stay tuned to episode 4, because tonight we end on a cliffhanger. Will she or won't she? Now standing up to, resisting, those who appear to have more power than us has clearly has consequences. Consequences that perhaps we cannot always predict. 
Earlier I asked you to consider how could you use your power this week to love your neighbours, particularly the powerless and vulnerable. Well, chapter 4 takes that challenge one step further. Do you know of someone who, or an institution which, may be using their power inappropriately, using it for their own benefit, being self-serving rather than other-serving? Are you in a position to stand up to them, advocate on behalf of others, break the cycle of abuse, love the victim of abusive power? Chapter 4 reminds us that God does choose to work through his people. But it also raises the possibility that there may be a cost if we choose to act. So in looking at chapters 3 and 4 tonight, we've explored the use and abuse of power. We have begun to ask questions about how do humans use the power they have? How does God use the power he has? And as a response, Nick's going to lead us in prayer now.